0: The reading can be found in your service sheet. It's from Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be paid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven.
1: Thank you very much, Susu, for reading that to us. I'm taking it that uh, Josh's prayer is exactly right, or use that colic we had earlier, but I'm going to echo it again as we just pray with the, the Bible open before us now. We thank you Lord for the gift of all Holy Scripture and this passage and you know the situation that we each are in tonight as we come to these words in the Bible. Uh, Some of us are are married, some of us are single, some of us have happy homes with good marriages, some of us it's much harder than that. Uh, Some of us are children with parents to uh, live with and uh, learn from some of us are in work and some of us aren't all these different situations they're known to you father and we thank you for that baseline conviction as we come to your word that you love us and want only the best for us you've shown that in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us so we rejoice in that tonight and pray for your grace to help us where this passage of the Bible is difficult, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it again. And may it point us on to heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, spoiler alert is to say that the, the Q&A slot is after the end of the service. We'll put the barstools out here for a more relaxed feeling. Coffee and tea will be available. Those who want to slip away easily can. Um, but uh, that option is, is there for us. There was a teenage son who'd borrowed his parents' brand new car and he phoned his dad later at work. Hi, Dad, he said. Do you want the good news or the bad news? Look, replied Dad, I'm really, really busy, um, so just give me the good news. Okay, said the boy. The good news is, you know the airbags in your new car? They work really, really well. I know there are Lots of good news, bad news jokes, and some of them are better than others. Maybe to some of us, sometimes the Christian faith is similar. We're not sure if it's good news or bad news that we're hearing. Some aspects of it we like, uh, other bits we find hard to take. And we've reached a point in the letter to the Colossians where people might react that sort of way. Chapter 3, verse 17, where we finished last week, is a good news verse, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Great, who could have any problem with a verse like that? I like it. It's life-affirming. It teaches that there is no sacred, secular division. Jesus Christ cares about all of my life and wants me to share it with him with thankfulness and joy. A Christian should be a hallelujah from head to toe all day, Every day, So we think, great, good news. Then comes verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Which to many, maybe to some of us, is bad news. And there's a a thought process that runs. Isn't this the sort of teaching used to justify the oppression and abuse of women by men? Uh, Historically, that is certainly true. Write to someone, if that's the case. Haven't we moved on from this sort of thing? In fact, the same question gets asked not just about husbands and wives in marriage, but parents and children and masters and slaves. These three different pairs, different sets of relationships described by Paul in our passage. Isn't this teaching out of date? It's so hierarchical. What about equal rights? Get with the program, church. Well, let me begin to answer that concern by saying that each group of people is addressed equally by Paul as responsible individuals. He addresses each group in those three pairs, wives as well as husbands, children as well as parents, slaves as well as masters. And that would have been revolutionary in his day. The household codes in the Bible aren't just addressed to men for them to impose in a blanket way on everybody else. All ages, all genders, people of different economic status in the church, they're all invited to the table, they're all part of the discussion, all are equally valued. So maybe it is better news than we imagined. Women and children and slaves weren't usually valued like that. I could move straight on and talk about those different pairings and fill my time easy enough, but I want to anchor the teaching in the Good News verse that we had last week, chapter 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Because the teaching of our passage today follows on from that verse. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus in chapter 3, verse 17, looks like what follows in chapter 3, verse 18, down to 4, verse 1. That is what a distinctive view of the Christian relationships is. It's all connected with one recurring idea, a word or phrase which actually comes seven times in the nine verses we've got today. And the word despot spot comes in, I'm going to read them all again anyway. Verse 18, verse 20, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24 twice, and then chapter 4, verse 1. And the word is Lord or Master. It's translated once. So you've got it in verse 18. Let me read it with emphasis. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. 22, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your states with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Different translation. Actually, it is the same word. Lord or master. And that one, that last one is important because it emphasizes that even when for one side of the relationship Paul doesn't mention any relationship with the Lord as foundational which is the case when he's talking about husbands and fathers, even then, still that relationship with God is guiding how they are to treat each other, treat others. Um, Ask me about that if that's not clear what I mean at that point. And the crucial point that Paul is deliberately repeating is this. Whatever category or its equivalent we may come in, wife, husband, child, parent, slave or master. We need to understand our role in terms of our relationship with Jesus, our Lord. So we are doing relationships in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there is one relationship which is to rule all other relationships, my relationships with, my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Keep at the back of your mind, it's not explicit in the passage, but just remember the lengths Jesus Christ went to for us to have a relationship with God. He laid down his life for us, his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us. And therefore, how could that relationship with God not be important if he went to such lengths for us? I just want to say that if you've never begun that relationship and ask God, For pardon and given your life to the one who died and rose again for you, that's the most important issue for anyone in that situation to ponder tonight. However intriguing or infuriating the pattern of relationships you see in Colossians is, those human relationships, the real thing is to start a relationship with heaven, first and foremost, to thank Jesus for dying for you and bow the knee to him as your risen Lord and ruler. But... This has implications for all of us, Christians as well. When we're trying to get a relationship right on earth, we need to get our relationship with heaven right. So we mustn't think domineering husband. No, focus on God. We mustn't think, ah, nagging wife. Think Jesus is Lord. Equally, the the other ones. Don't think... Rebellious teenager, or absent father, or idle employee, or heartless mean boss. Think, how does this earthly relationship fit in with my heavenly relationship with Jesus Christ? Okay, with that background, hopefully flowing out of 3.17, let's uh, dive into wives and husbands. Let me reread 18 and 19. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands... As is fitting in the Lord, husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. And to help us counter the idea that we're in bad news territory here, I want us to hold the two verses together. There was a wedding once where, immediately after the marriage vows, the vicar announced the next hymn, 537. And the organist was seen to be shaking their head. Because the hymn was supposed to be Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. But what he'd actually announced was Fight the good fight with all your might. I guess it is possible for people to emphasize one side of the two roles in marriage to the exclusion of the other, and for a distorted battle of the sexes to result. But let's hold these two verses together Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I hope we'll see that taken together, those verses are not bad news for women, but good news as wives and husbands together display a beautiful other person sent in this out of reverence for Christ. No doubt there's a discussion to be had about what it means for a wife to submit Well, I'm not even going to address that at this stage, Uh, partly because as I read it, that is not my concern as a husband, and I think actually we men uh, have got, in one sense, some catching up to do with these verses in front of us historically. The husband isn't told to make sure his wife submits. That balance, if you think about it, is almost bound to make me harsh. He's told to love her and not to be harsh with her. So I want to speak to the men, if I can, and I know not all of us are are married at the moment, but we all hear the situation and pray for marriages, I guess, in this situation. Men, watch the tone of your voice in the home. Take note, if to save you time in a discussion, you're coming over as abrupt... With other people in the home. Men are by and large physically stronger, and tempers can boil over into actual violence, or maybe just be perceived as physically threatening. And of course, wives should be the ones who decide that, not the husbands. Equally, the language here is saying don't dismiss a wife's opinions or her feelings. There, there, little lady, that sort of approach. I mustn't belittle Susu as if she is a problem to be fixed or be harsh in the classic male way, um, which is, I've got notes here that say, passive-aggressive withdrawing and silence. That is how I subtly do harshness without it being visibly harsh. It's a sort of Cold War aggression. Instead, says Paul, be loving in our words in the praise we give, in the time we give our wives, in the gifts, the anniversary cards, in the physical closeness at home and out in public, in the jobs we do around the home, uh, the admin we sort out, that sort of thing. If that's happening from my end, then however submission is lived out in each case, it'll presumably be more straightforward, won't it? Both partners are to put the other first in different ways. And if you've seen a living example of it, you will know that it is a beautiful thing. It's good news. Now, notice how we've already mentioned how the relationship with the Lord is the essential backdrop. Paul implies that if a wife has a problem with her husband, that may in fact show that she has a problem with Jesus Christ. And he could equally say the same to me when I'm harsh and unloving in my marriage? The question comes back, how can that fit with a loving, self-sacrificing, gentle saviour like Jesus? So the heavenly relationship for both parties shapes the earthly marriage. Speaking personally, I think I need to remind myself of this as a pastor when I talk to a couple whose marriage is in trouble. Of course, there's a, a place for looking at what they're finding difficult with each other But it's easy for me to leave out the one question I should always ask to myself or anyone else. How are things in your relationship with the Lord Jesus? Uh, Are you reading his word? Are you seeking to please him? I don't mean to sound glib, but that may well be where the problem lies. My priority mustn't be to save the marriage, though of course we long for that, but for both marriage partners to be saved and growing in their love of the Lord Jesus. And again, forgive me if it sounds superficial, it is anything but superficial that if the heavenly relationship is being taken seriously, even if by only one party, then there is hope for the earthly relationship in that situation. Let me move on to the next set of relationships, I'm going fast. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm sort of treading on toes or, or putting a knife into to wounds. Um, that's partly why we're having a question time afterwards. Uh, forgive me if I've, I've done that already. Let's move on to children and parents. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers could be parents. Don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Again, hold those two verses together, and what we see is a thing of beauty, is it not? In verse 20, there's a word for children. It's addressed presumably to children at home, still dependent on their parents' support. But significantly, they are addressed as church members in their own rights, alongside the adults. And as an aside, that's why I really value the all-age services at all saints, because it's important that the word of God is addressed to both children and adults in each other's hearing. So he addresses the children and tells them to obey their parents, not to please their parents, but in order to please Jesus Christ. That's what should determine a particular course of action, not will it please my parents, but will it please Jesus. So it's difficult, but how much easier in one sense for a child to obey obey a parent who encourages them and doesn't embitter them. Note to parents, how important not to withhold encouragement or praise from our children when it should be given. How important not to hide behind the need to discipline them, which is there, For parents to recognize that we are older and in all likelihood much more resilient and therefore to give much more praise and affirmation than criticism. How important not to make our love conditional on good performance or on meeting our expectations. And thank God again for that heavenly perspective, even though it's not mentioned here. What a relief that we parents have a perfect father in heaven. Who doesn't slip into uh, the harshness that's being ruled out here with us? Well, more to say on that, I'm sure. But uh, let's move on to slaves and masters. Verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, bitterly it's not easy for us to step back into the shoes of a first-century slave. When we hear the word slave... We instinctively think of the human cargoes on the slave ships or the brutal oppression in the sugar plantations of the West Indies or the cotton fields of the US. First century slavery was, most of the time, was not normally at that extreme level of oppression and brutality, but it was still the ownership of another human being with all rights withheld. It's an evil practice, which ultimately Christianity would go a long way towards eradicating centuries later. That was inconceivable at this stage, when Christians were just a tiny minority. Slavery was something they just had to live with, in one sense. So it doesn't mean, when Paul writes this way, that he's condoning slavery here. It's just that it was a reality which they had to cope with. And even, he's saying, to glorify Christ in. He calls on the slaves and their masters to turn their eyes towards God. So what Paul is commending here is something like this. Your slavery must become your worship. It must be done, as the end of verse 22 puts it, out of reverence for the Lord. So the Christian slave would show what they thought of Jesus by doing their slavery better which is a a radical approach to slavery, to turn it into worship. But however different the social setting today is, that is what all our work is to be, worship, our schoolwork, college courses, research that people are doing, nursing, banking, uh, waiting if that's your work, laboring, exciting work, humdrum work, all the different options the sort of work we do as retirees. It's all worship, or should be, which is radical. When you consider that our culture worships career, Christians have got to turn that on their head, on its head, and our working life is to be our worship. We show what we think of Jesus by how we do our work, or I suppose you could say how we handle unemployment for that matter. And if we find that hard, well, think how hard it must have been for the slave with an unjust, harsh master. So you see how we ought to be thinking of ourselves on a Monday morning, tomorrow, for example. Ask yourself, who am I working for? And there are lots of ways you could answer it. Am I just a tiny cog in a massive operation? Just a a number in a big faceless organization? I work for the NHS. Are we slaves for the children that we have to dress, feed and drive, here, there and everywhere? Or for the elderly relative we've got to help out of bed? Are we a junior to that bullying line manager? No, actually none of those are true. I'm to think of myself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And at a stroke, that liberates us From focusing on pleasing our earthly superiors, which is why he highlights all sorts of wrong patterns that we easily slip into, only working hard when they're watching, uh, slipping into insincerity because we're basically people pleasers. Now, whether or not anybody notices, we do our work for Jesus, it's service of Him. The other mistake I suppose we might make is to say, well, I don't work for anyone, I'm my own boss. Well, that too is wrong. It's so helpful that those in authority in the working relationship here are reminded that they have a master in heaven. What a corrective to bullying and abusive patterns of leadership that should be. I am not the boss of the church staff. I am called to serve by leading, but I'm not the boss He is the Lord. So it is as if Jesus has given us all our job descriptions and he says to us, here's what I want you to get on with. And therefore, how I work indicates what I think of him. If you're wondering where the good news bit in this bit is, well, look at the positive motivation in verse 24. A reward in heaven which is striking, isn't it? Because a slave had no rights and no possessions as such. They couldn't inherit legally anything from anyone. And Paul says, you've no need to worry. You have an inheritance in heaven, which is good news, isn't it? We feel like we are working in the lion's den in a setting which is dissatisfying, frustrating, full of sinful people and sinful standards. I can actually set that on one side and take encouragement for where I'm heading, the inheritance in heaven. Because there, the whole environment's going to be different. There my work is noticed, it is valued. See once again how he's saying, remember your heavenly relationship. In verse 25, I think it's also the motivation not to do wrong, that anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there's no favoritism, I assume, no favoritism with God. If I'm a worker in a bad job, being badly treated by a bad master, in that situation, I might be tempted to think I'm justified in doing something wrong. But Paul says, no, you're not. So I can't say, well, I'll fiddle my expenses because it's a terrible company you're working for. No, God is impartial, and sin is always sin. So, once again, I keep my perspective on pleasing him. Once again, remember the heavenly relationship. In fact, do everything, all our relationships, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, let's pray together for his help in that. Father, you know the thoughts of our hearts and the situation of our lives, and we thank you that Jesus is one who doesn't put out a a smoldering wick or break a bruised reed, where there's pain and wrongdoing that we're aware of, our own or other people's. We pray for your grace as we ponder this word. And we pray for your help to see the good news in it, knowing that you are a a good and generous God. And then for grace to learn what you'd have us learn in all the different sorts of relationships we're involved. We pray for that uh, work of your spirit to please you, Heavenly Father, and to glorify you. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.